Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Tommy Pearson, your host for this evening. A couple of things to say before we start. One is to say a big thank you, as always, to PRS for Music uh, for uh, supporting this event and all the other events as well. And also to the Royal Albert Hall, of course, for hosting and uh, for everyone at BAFTA as well. These conversations, as many of you will know, have been going on for a few years now. We've had some really kind of diverse selection of composers over the years. Every now and then we talk to some people who have really done almost everything within this business, not just compose, but arrange and produce and edit and all sorts of things. And uh, tonight is one of those uh, occasions. We're very lucky to have tonight's guest. We have been badgering her for years to do this event <laughs> and I think must have caught her on a weak moment. Uh, so actually it is a great pleasure to be able to finally say, ladies and gentlemen, Anne Dudley. Thank you, Tommy. All right, welcome, Anne. As I say, it's, it, this is not your natural habitat, is it? I know you love, the you perform, <laughs> but you perform, you've done a lot of performing and everything, but uh, talking like this is not something you've done a lot of. No, not a lot. Um, but uh, as you say, a, a weak moment happened and here I am. <laughs> Maybe we should start by talking about how it really began for you and how you actually got into music in the first place. How did it happen? Um, well, I mean, it just goes right back to when I was seven, my mum bought a piano because um, I think she had a wall that she thought the piano would look quite nice on. Mm. And um, I badgered her for piano lessons, started having piano lessons. I wasn't particularly brilliant, but I just sort of kept at it. At school, there came the opportunity to play the clarinet, and so I took that up. And then gradually, music became more and more part of my life. And, and it, it came to the stage where I couldn't actually imagine doing anything else in my life. And I got a an exhibition ship to the Royal College of Music over the road, and I used to go there on Saturdays from the age of about 12. And then at 18, I went there full-time, did all the stuff, and then sort of got thrown out into the world and thought, well, crikey, how do you actually make a living? Mm. I'd actually always liked pop music, and I suppose it was my aim, really. My ambition was to be a session musician because I thought being a session musician would be a bit like being a musician in Haydn's orchestra. You'd always have new music to play mm. and it would always be fresh and a different challenge all the time because I had no idea how you went about that. But I'd already sort of learnt a bit of jazz piano and I was doing a few gigs here and there. And um, I was depping one night in a dance hall in Wimbledon, Wimbledon Tiffany's, because in those days they used to have a live band. And um, somebody else came along to Depp, and it was a bass player called Trevor Horn. And everybody said, oh, Trevor, always oh, big, big name, you know. He's Tina Charles's MD, you know. I'm sure you've never even heard of Tina Charles. <laughs> but um, Trevor was just sort of starting, or trying to start making a name for himself as a producer. And in those days, Publishers would often call on producers to produce demos for them because people didn't have home studios, so they always needed people to be competent in the studio. So Trevor was just about starting out booking musicians. And I had this Wurlitzer electric piano, and then he said to me sort of rather grudgingly, he said, uh, I like the sound of your piano. Um, do you hire it out? And I said, no. No, if you, if, you, if you have the piano, you have to have me. 
<laughs> and I thought that was probably one of the, one of the, one of the good answers that I ever gave, because he was then forced to, to book me, and uh, you know things sort of took off from there, really. So that, that really was the moment. Whatever happened to Trevor Horn? Do we, yeah, do we I don't know. know. Disappeared without trace. Yeah. <laughs> that, that really was the moment then, because obviously, I mean, I would imagine most people uh, around that time, the first time they'd have heard of you and come across you is through records and yeah. other people's records, but also the band Art of Noise. Yes, well, we, um, we started working together in the studio and he, this was sort of early 80s, and um, he was producing a band called Dollar, very sort of highly uh, produced, very arranged records, lots of things going on. And then, um, then he was offered this band called ABC, and they, um, well, they were a more or less fully formed band, but they didn't have a keyboard player, so that was handy. And we worked on this track called Poison Arrow, and um, then they did the album, The Lexicon of Love which still seems to play a large part in my life, actually. Yes, you're touring it <laughs> We're live. touring it live. You were playing the whole album from start to finish with a live orchestra and live band. In front of people of a certain age. I think that's fair to say, yes. yes. <laughs> we all remember those songs. But that must, what an incredible experience, not just playing then to also then start realising the music a little bit in orchestration. Yes, well, you see, he said to me, can you do a string arrangement? And when you're in your 20s, you say yes to everything. Of course, I didn't have a clue. And I said, yes. <laughs> and then went home and quickly got out my record collection and listened to all the records that I liked with string arrangements and worked out how it was done. And I've always actually loved those great records of the 70s, The Sound of Philadelphia, which is the combination of a really sort of funky rhythm section with, a, with great strings and horn lines. And I've always thought that that's sort of the ultimate pop arrangement. And I aspired to that. I mean, I don't think I achieved it, but I still aspire to it. And um, this being the 80s, um, people bought records, which meant there was money about. Record companies invested in recording records. Studios invested in lots of um, innovative gear and technology, and um, studios did. But <clears throat> Trevor Horn particularly did, didn't he? He would buy the first of something, always be the first to have. have well, the yes, new I bit mean th there was a there was a huge amount of competition. You know, who who could make the best sounding record? And we mm. used to, you know, uh, we used to go out and buy records and sit around in the studio put them up on those big speakers and listen to them and thinking, well, how did they get that sound? What's, where's that come from? And so, um, yeah, and I mean, one of the very, very expensive bits of gear that Trevor invested in was this great sort of washing machine-y thing called a Fairlight, hmm. a Fairlight CMI, computer music instrument. And it was really the first of the sampling instruments. And um, we started to have quite a lot of fun with that. And um, we started sampling odd things like doors slamming and cars starting and um, that wonderful sound that you get when you used to put a, a, a Betamax tape into a Betamax video <laughs> machine. Oh, that's going back a bit, isn't it? <laughs> um, and, and then trying to build rhythm tracks from these odd sounds, you know, like ping pong balls and things. That track is 32 years old. <laughs> Still sounds, still sounds fresh. It still, still sounds, sounds like new. bonkers, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I remember we, we had the problem um, that everybody comes to when they try and write instrumental music. When, does it, when is it finished and how do you structure it? And the reason it's called Close to the Edit was that Trevor 
<clears throat> went away one weekend and he listened to this track by Yes called Close to the Edge. Mm. And he came back with this analysis of this track, you know, the, he's, and, which I was quite impressed about. There'll be theme A and then theme B and then theme A with variations and then theme C. And so we looked at this and thought, okay, well, we'll do that. We'll have this section and that section and this section. And then um, it didn't sort of quite work out like that because all the bits, you know, it didn't quite work. So, so it got actually stuck together with tape, which is why it's called Close to the Edit and not Close to the Edge. But um, yes, I mean, you can hear the car on that. You can hear this funny little bass sound. And the sequencer in the Fairlight, which was called Page R, would do this thing that I'd never come across before called quantization. So you put in this sort of nonsense bass part and it would quantize it to 16th notes. So, um, you know, it was really the first sequencer that I'd ever seen, hmm. limited though it was. The, uh, every time I hit the, the hey sound yeah. is the reason why you have a credit on Prodigy's Firestarter, isn't yes, it? Yes, indeed. Yes. So, <laughs> we are how, how great is that? Co-writers of Firestarter. Co-writers of yeah, Firestarter. So every time that plays, you are rewarded uh, with, uh, for well, a hay. Yeah, yeah tiny, tiny, tiny amount. <laughs> what I'm interested in is how this technology then impacted on what you ended up doing. Because mm. it seems to me that that time, that was a great time of experimentation, as you say, new technology, seeing how it all worked. But all of that, work that you did has impacted in some way, hasn't it? Well, on, what we, on what on all what we, composers what we now all use. Do, what we all do now, yeah. because everybody uses sampling um, as part and parcel of their everyday um, creative techniques, I guess, and sequences, obviously. Everybody uses sequences. Um, and it, it, for me, I mean, I've always had this great interest in sound, per se, you know, that the, that's why I sometimes get quite upset about sound effects in film, which didn't exactly do what I expected them to do because they're at a wrong sort of pitch or somehow they take up too much space or something. And I, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> So I've always been interested in sound and I'm still very interested in ele electronic sounds and how you can combine that with real instruments. I mean, close to the end, there's a, there's a few sort of semi-real things on that as well. What it, are you responsible for those big orchestral stabs in the things stab. like Frankie Goes to Hollywood? Yes, record, that's right? the Fairlight as well. Yeah. Because yeah. it... When you listen to it, you think, oh, wow, they got the whole orchestra in for that one note. Oh, well, we did have a whole orchestra for two tribes. Oh. Yeah, we had a 60-piece orchestra for that. Those okay. were the days for 60-piece <laughs> orchestra on a pop record. Brilliant. How did you get into movies? How did you move from that into movies? Well, um, because Art of Noise was basically an instrumental group, a lot of people would use our music for various films and adverts and promo clips and all sorts of things. And so we got interest from some people who wanted to get us to score a movie for them. And in fact, Art of Noise is credited with scoring a film which you've probably never seen called Disorderlies. You have seen I haven't it? Seen no, 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 Disorderlies, okay. Well, it's, <laughs> it starred the Fat Boys, and the Fat Boys thing was that they did this human beatbox thing, as well as sort of rapping. And anyway, they star in this film, and it's a bizarre sort of comedy. Uh, it has its moments. And, um, and that sort of gave us the first taste of working with picture. And, um, and then after that, uh, I got offered a few other things. And um, Buster was a film Buster, that I did with Phil, Phil Collins. Collins. Yeah, yeah Phil, mm -hmm. Phil Collins is the great train robber. The Pope Must Die. The Pope Must Die. And I was also doing quite a lot of adverts at that stage because there was a lot of work in advertising. Mm. 
Um, so I, I'd, you know, I had you know, a fair amount of experience of working to picture. The Crying Game, directed by Neil Jordan. Tell me how you uh, ended up doing that film. Well, it was the same production company. It was Stephen Woolley and Nick Powell who'd um, done The Pope Must Die and another film by um, Neil Jordan called The Miracle, which I scored. And um, I can't remember how I met them, actually. Uh, the Pope Must Die, we did, I did it with Jeff Beck, and I think Jeff had sort of suggested that we did it, we did it together. Um, and so I met them, and then they said, well, would you like to meet Neil Jordan and... Um, I read the script for The Crying Game and I thought, well, it'll never work because I thought, well, you'll never find... You've probably all seen The Crying Game, so I, this is not a spoiler. <laughs> um, you'll probably never find somebody who, could, who would convince you that much that they were actually a woman when they weren't. Yes. But uh, they did find somebody and it was well, they, remarkable. They certainly did. So one of the challenges, obviously, with, as a composer is how to find the the musical language that goes through the film, but also how you move the music through the film. And often that can be to do with what's happening in the film. But here you can't give anything away, can you? You can't do anything. You've, you've almost got to be the audience for this film. You can't yeah, build so, up to a moment that yeah. we don't know yet exists. No, exactly. Well, well, of all the films that I've ever done, I think this one, you really need to approach it in the same frame of mind as a member of the audience and as as the arc of the film develops you have to sort of develop the music um i could shall i demonstrate something on this wonderful red piano <laughs> um in the crying game the whole uh, the whole score is is based on a very um a very simple two note well a two sort of chord uh thing which goes the sort of stillness be between those two chords and then I think in the clip that we've going going to see these two chords sort of they start like that and then they do this sort of key change up a bit which makes it sort of takes away the coolness of it and it makes it a little warmer it goes I think the, the music has a sort of stillness to it. And um, I, I sort of based that idea on the character of, um, that Jay Davison plays, the character of Dill, which has a sort, he, he has a sort of stillness in the way that he performs. So in a scene like that, how much does Neil Jordan have to say, input-wise, to where you shift the music. There's various points, the moments where he says a particular thing, you yeah. shift the music a well, little bit. Well, it's something that if you have a, a really good director who knows what they've directed and understands the sort of dynamics of a scene, when you have a spotting session, you should talk about it in great detail. You know, obviously there's a turning point where they're starting to connect. And, you know, if you can actually pick that up with a telling musical moment then um you, you know the music's starting to do what it ought to be doing which is to underline the sort of emotional intensity of things is he a musical director he is quite musical neil and um no he was really great to work with because he knew enough about music to talk in those terms mm. but 
not enough to sort of tell you that you ought to use an F sharp minor seven in there. Which you don't want. Right? <laughs> well, I did use an F sharp minor seven actually. <laughs> no, I mean, you don't want him to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> no, but it, 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 every composer seems to have a different opinion about this, but it, it's whether, whether there is actually any uh, value in having a director who's really, really uh, musical because they will direct you more in a certain direction. Yes, I think it's somebody... You need somebody who knows what music can do and is realistic about it. Mm. And um, I think the best people, people do, you know, have an understanding of that. One of the joys of doing these talks is with someone who's done so many movies like you is that we jump from one movie to another and they're completely different films. The next film we're going to talk about is uh, The Full Monty, okay. uh, which is obviously rather different to uh, The Crying Game. Uh, but again, a, a British film um, and a very, very successful one, of course. Um, very different approach. It's comedy, isn't it? But it's, it's got a sort of layer of tragedy and anger, perhaps, yes. in it because of the setting yes. of the film itself. Yes. It's a poignancy so, to it, isn't it? So what, how did you decide on the approach for, for Full Monty? Um, well, comedy can be quite a challenge, I think, and I, I, I don't really like sort of comic music, you know. I think there's certain clichés that get trotted out in comic music, which is rather bad. And um, when I, I, did, um, I did a whole series of uh, Jeeves and Worcester, which yeah. was also a com comedy, and what I found was very useful was to have a rhythm in it, and Jeeves and Worcester has got this sort of quirky dance bandy sort of rhythm. This is the series with Stephen Fry and yeah, Hugh Laurie. Yeah, Stephen Fry and Steve, um, Hugh Laurie. And um, in, in, the, in the Full Monty, I, I also wanted to find a rhythm, and I found this sort of um, quirky, again, um, reggae-ish sort of rhythm, uh, which seemed to sort of fit this rather sort of lolloping, um, rather uncoordinated dance troop that they're forming and um, I also had this idea that, that because there are sort of six or seven disparate characters who come together and form this dance group we might have six or seven disparate sort of instruments instruments that wouldn't normally you'd find in a, in a band together we have a baritone sax and a harmonica and a guitar and um, and somehow it all sort of blends together and gives you this sound of the score and um, it, seemed, it seemed to work quite well. I mean, there is another challenge in um, the Full Monty, and there's, there's a lot of source music, or what you might call needle yes. drop music. There's a lot of um, music from the 70s, 80s, which I suppose is, uh, I mean, this is in, in the 90s, but mm. this is music from the era when the guys were younger. Landing on the sort of reggae style, did you, does that mean you tried a lot of other styles first before you found that one, or I did it come it, quickly? Uh, I found a f I've tried a few, actually, yeah. And I remember having a, a sort of to and froing with Peter Catania as to, you know, what, what it might be. <laughs> but who has... Uh, he presumably has the ultimate Yeah, decision. I mean, once we, once we found something that we liked, we were both in agreement that it was probably going to work. So how do you deal with all these existing songs in the film? Because obviously there are a lot of very well-known sequences in this film that are based on on older tracks. I mean, Hot Chocolate mm. is probably the most famous one in the, uh, where they're dancing in the queue as well with Adonis Summer and uh, Gary Glitter is in there. They're all in there, aren't they? And um, how do, So how do, how do you find your way around all of that? Yeah, I think you have to sort of take it into account because most of the tracks were in the film when I scored it. It's yeah. sometimes quite misleading if you score a film then you find all sorts of different tracks in it that you mm -hmm. didn't know about. 
Um, and I think that the score has to have its own very strong character, so that it's also got a reason to be there. Um, and I also think that there was a certain characteristic of a lot of these tracks. They had a lot of brass in them. And so I thought somehow brass instruments seemed to work. I don't know, maybe because it's set in Sheffield, <laughs> steel, you know, maybe. Uh, so there was, th there was that to take into account. Yes. The next clip we have is uh, of the character played by Tom Wilkinson. Mm. And the reason I've chosen this is because you, you, you suddenly you go into a tango for this Yes. This is Tom Wilkinson's character has lost his job, but he hasn't told his wife yes. for six months, I think. No, and, and they, this is the moment. Well, they're also very keen on ballroom dancing. Yeah. And that's why the reason that Gary wants him in the band, in, in, the, in the dance troupe, because he's the only one who knows how to dance. <laughs> Um, and so uh, he's, he's the ballroom dancer, so the tango seemed quite relevant. And also there's a sort of, there's a terrible tragedy about him and the tango being sort of very minor key uh, in character seems to suit the sort of rather hangdog uh, look of Tom Wilkinson. But I that's the thing, thought. I mean, you're playing it for comedy, but uh, it's at, what they're actually saying and the situation they're actually in is it's really quite serious. Yes, but in a way... That, that, was, that was one of the things that we had to achieve in, in the balance of the score in the Full Monty. I think I always tried um, to go for the tragedy a bit more, but Peter Canardi wasn't having any of it. And, and he was probably right, because the characters themselves, they're acting so well that you don't need to do that. And you could get quite mawkish uh, and overdo it quite easily. So, you know, it's, I don't think the tragedy is in, in any way undermined by the comedy in the score. I think it's a really interesting scene because it's a really tragic moment, really, for them. It's an embarrassing moment, but Yes, it would be interesting to see it with different music on, yeah. really. You could, uh, <laughs> you could probably uh, do quite an interesting comparison. Now, the, the climax of the whole film, of course, is when they do finally do the full Monty, yeah. and they do it to Randy Newman's song, You Can Leave Your Hat On. Um, you produced that too, mm. did you not? With Tom Jones? Well, I think that's probably why I got, got the gig in the first place, because Uberto Pasolina, this, the um, producer, knew that I had Tom Jones' phone number. <laughs> and the reason I have Tom phones, Jones' phone number is because we'd already done a record with him, The Art of Noise Did Kiss with Tom Jones. Yeah. And um, Uberto was really, really keen on getting Tom to do a cover of this song. And uh, so I said, oh, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll call him. And, um, well, I called his manager, actually, because so, I thought that would probably be the best approach. And I, I can just sort of remember the phone call. I was, I was trying to explain the film to the manager, and I said, well, it's quite a, quite a low-budget British film, and it's about a group of steel workers who decide to take their clothes off in order to do a sort of Chippendales and I could hear you know you might as I was describing it you know I was losing heart really <laughs> and I could think at the end of the phone I was thinking he's thinking you know she's scraping the bottle of bottom of the barrel now anyway to his credit he put the idea to Tom and Tom loved the song and I'd always wanted to do it and um, so uh, he agreed to do it, and he was on tour at the time. So he said, well, um, you know, we, the time was a bit tight, so I did the backing track, and uh, he said, well, I can give you an afternoon in Newcastle. Okay, if you can find a studio in Newcastle, we can do the track. So we tried to find a studio in Newcastle, and um, we've sure enough found a studio, and it was sort of 27 
Smeaton Road or something. And it just looked like a house. And I thought, oh, it'll be fine, you know. Once we go through the door, it'll be a great TARDIS, you know. It'll be like a studio. <laughs> no, it was just like a house. And we went downstairs <laughs> into this basement. And it was a little studio. But it was all set up with guitars and drums and everything. And I said, you know, you've got Tom Jones coming in a minute. Can't you clear this stuff away? Oh, no, you've got the Tigers of Pantang coming this evening to finish off their album. <laughs> so, so Tom sort of... Bless him, he sort of squeezed in between all this stuff, gets the microphone and sings the song, you know, like he's sung it all his life. I did about three or four takes. They were all brilliant. And he was like, well, thanks very much, Tom. And he said, oh, I like the song so much, I think I'll put it in the set tonight. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. Was it always going to be that song? Always, yeah. 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 In fact, they, they, it was a bit of a sort of one of those things that happen in films. They'd cut the sequence to Randy Newman's version which and is nothing like the which ones is not that like knows. no exactly yeah. well it's not like the version that we ended up doing and then they had to recut the sequence and oh you know it was one of those sort of traumas Randy Newman always says about about that song and, and a couple of others that uh, he does them and no one hears them and then someone else puts it up yeah. about six tones and has a huge hit with it <laughs> He can't have minded, though, can No, I, I think he's done all right out of it. I think he's done all right. Now, of course, you won an Oscar for this Oh, yes, score, it was that, didn't yeah. You? Uh, you remember that. And I remember that. I remember that. that those are the days... Uh, they, they had this period, didn't they, where they split the... Uh, they had two music Oscars. Yes, One for sort of days. serious drama, or drama, and then one for musical and comedy. comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, that must have been pretty thrilling. It was incredibly thrilling, yes, and um, I did feel like a bit of an intruder at the party, but I had this fantastic frock that I'd had made for me, and it was like an actress's, you know, if you put the clothes on, you think you can do it, yeah. and, I, and I, you know, I thought I could do it with the frock on. <laughs> what was it like, then, <coughs> part of all of that? Oh, it was great fun, yeah, incredible fun and sort of bonkers. <laughs> Where is it? I have to, you always ask that. Where's the Oscar? Oh, it's in the cupboard. It's in no. a cupboard. No, no, it's it's, under, it's you know it's a display cabinet. It's with the um, with the. You should have said display cabinet. Then, but it is a display cupboard, cabinet, it and it's got my husband's cup for daffodils oh, yes. in, in the village yeah. horticultural society, and my medal for being second at tennis in yeah. the equity tennis tournament. You know various achievements. There's an equity tennis tournament. Yes, and I was second. Uh, so various achievements of my family. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right, let's um, let's move to a, again another a complete shift in style and content to uh, American History X, mm. uh, 1998. This this is uh, I mean it's extraordinary. I watched it again, obviously for this a couple of days ago, and uh, for the first time in ages, and I'd forgotten actually what a what power it has actually, mm. and what a, it's a difficult watch, mm. isn't it? Often, but this is a film that had a lot talked about it before. Anyone had seen it. It was mm. one of those, wasn't it? Um, not just in the subject matter, perhaps, which is about, I guess it's a neo-Nazi who then goes to prison but then decides to, as it were, switch sides and try and stop his brother from becoming the same man that he, yes. he became. Um, but this, this is a film that had a lot, of, a lot of fuss made about it because of, of the director and because of the pr whole production. Yes, it was People a knew shame, about actually. it before it, the film it, arrived. It, it overshadowed the whole reception of the film. Mm. It was um, the first feature film that Tony Kay made. Tony was a really um, incredibly famous um, director of commercials mm. in the 80s, and this was his first feature film, and typically it was really, really challenging subject matter, and 
Tony did an incredible job on it, but for some, lots of reasons, he sort of fell out with the film company and with Edward Norton. And um, the version that I scored, um, Tony never really thought it was the final cut. He, he always thought he was going to get into the, into the cutting room again and do another edit of it. And he was sort of okay about that until um, we, was, we were recording it at um, CBS Studios, used to be in Whitfield Street, and he came to the recording session and he would sort of mutter about, oh, I'm going to, you know, if a scene would come up and he'd say, oh, I'm going I'm to change that. And I'm thinking... Yeah, maybe you should have told me that before I scored it, but yeah. hey-ho. Because every cut has an impact on what you do. Yes, I know, but yeah. I don't think that had quite filtered through to Tony. <laughs> and, um, and then we got to the, one of the sort of the climactic final scene, and he was really, really upset about the edit on this particular scene. And it's become a bit of a legendary occurrence that he threw an orange at the screen and walked out. Well, I'd like to point out that it wasn't an orange, it was a tangerine. And it was actually quite a soft tangerine because it had been in the bowl for quite a time. So, you know, this sort of story is exaggerated. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he walked out and was not seen again and was next heard of in St. Lucia where he'd gone to meet Derek Walcott, the Nobel Prize-winning poet, because he thought Derek would be a good guy to sort of rewrite some parts of this film. Now, meanwhile, New Line Cinema were very keen to get this film out in time for the awards season and because they, they thought Ed Norton might get a nomination for Best Actor and things like that. So it all got rather uncomfortable and Tony sort of disowned the film because he didn't think that he'd really finished it. And I was a sort of last man standing on this film, as it were. And um, it, it, it all rather overshadowed the, the film, unfortunately, I felt. Yeah. It's not the only film we, we had discussed this evening that has a difficult subject matter. What are the considerations for you when you are first given a script or, or a project? Do you, ever th do you ever... Is there stuff that you read and you think, I, I can't do this, this is, this is too much for me? Right. Yes, occasionally. But um, you have to sort of try and find the theme underneath it. Um, and, <clears throat> I mean, there is a very strong theme that of redemption in American History X. Mm. And, um, you know, you have to sort of look beyond the surface of it, really. But Tony, Tony Kaye tried to, famously tried to take his name off this film, didn't mm. he? He wanted to have Alan Smithy, which is the... Yeah. Default setting for people. Who well, he want... wanted Humpty Dumpty. Oh, did he want Humpty Dumpty? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you, you didn't get wrapped up in any of any of that in the end. You could no, I was it. able to um, stay away from all of it. Actually, mm. I didn't get. I managed to stay friendly with both parties, which I think was unique in that <laughs> on that film. Um, the next film we're going to talk about is it takes us away from original composition and into the realms of arrangement and almost music direction, I suppose, mm. which is Les Miserables, the recent version of the musical, directed by Tom Hooper. Um, this, this project was a pretty difficult project, wasn't it, for technical reasons? And I think maybe we should explain, yes. explain why. Well, um, I was rung up by my friend Becky, Becky Bentham, who said, um, are you interested in getting involved in a film of Les Miserables where they're going to sing entirely live? And I said, well, that's an interesting idea. 
and um, I'll have a meeting. And I had a meeting with Tom Hooper, and he sort of said, well, you're the first person who's, who's actually said, yes, this is possible. <laughs> <laughs> because um, generally on a musical, you pre-record music because there's all sorts of technical reasons why you wouldn't want to do it on set. And yet, you know, Tom, Tom had done a bit of research and he talked to our excellent sound man, Simon Hayes, and our wonderful music editor, Gerard McCann. And we did a bit of experimentation and we put some actors in a studio and we put on these lapel mics and we got a perfectly good sound from them. And... Um, you know, we said, well, if, if you can let us have these lapel mics and don't cover them with costume and they're always going to have to wear soft shoes, you know, we're going to have to be very, very careful of all these background noises and we're going to have to have a very, very quiet set, um, then we can record the sound quite well. Um, they had to take out the microphones sometimes in post-production, you know, with these video techniques that they do. And then in order for the, for the actors to hear the music, they would all be wearing earpieces. And on set, we had a live electric piano. So, you know, it's like sort of being on stage, really. You've got your earpiece, you've got your microphone, and, you know, you should be able to sing perfectly well. And indeed, that worked pretty well most of the time. Um, the, the challenge, well, there was a lots of challenges, but one of my main tasks was to then fit the orchestra to it afterwards, to make it sound like the orchestra had been there all the time, which, of course, they hadn't. It was working backwards. Working backwards, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing about Les Miserables is you could, you could, you'd be very hard-pressed to pre-record the music. And, and this was Tom's big thing. He says, I don't want to lock the actors into doing their interpretation of the songs months before we're on set before they sort of have had a chance to get it into, the, into their sort of very souls. And, you know, we must give them a chance to do different interpretations like they would of any normal scene in any normal film. Um, so, so that was fine. And then, but then, uh, so what we, what we end up is actors, various takes, different speeds of different takes. Mm joining it together so then you know, you know there doesn't seem to be any sort of meter in the music so um, together with a team of music editors we had these incredibly complicated and sophisticated click tracks going on and um, it's really like the swan you know the swan swimming along all sort of elegant and effortless and underneath there's all this stuff going on <laughs> and I don't even think that Tom himself knew what was going on because of course you don't really monitor the clicks when you're in the studio you know they're in the cans for the for the musicians and the conductor but um yeah because it's, it's a nice idea isn't it to think oh yeah obviously to get a good performance an acting performance from the actor get them to sing on the set yeah but the the ramifications of that nice idea are enormous yeah. for you yes indeed but um you know, we, we booked in general. We had actors who could sing quite well. In general. In general. And um, who, who, who are you suggesting possibly? Well, Anne Hathaway was very, very good. Very and good. Hugh Jackman was excellent. Yes. Um, moving on. Uh, 
And um, oh, I just want to ask you about the <laughs> click tracks. Because click tracks, You yes. said they were very, very complicated. What, I suppose what, what you mean, presumably, is that the click track is, is essentially changing all the time to the performance that you're, that you're having on screen. Yes, but it's hopeless. You can't just click every beat, you know, because mm. you get... And the musicians can't follow that. So you've got to have a sort of degree of logic about it and then you've got to sort of work out how to do your ritardandos and actually that bar's got a five five four in it because that's the way that ritardando happens to work we can keep the five clicks exactly in tempo and then you 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 sometimes modify your orchestration to be a little bit softer around those edges you know so that you don't so that the, you know it doesn't exactly matter if you don't entirely connect with exactly where the piano was how long did it take you to do this? Because oh. it sounds like a nightmare. Well, it was a nightmare, yes. And as <laughs> I said, we had an army of um, we had an army of music editors. I shared the orchestration with the wonderful Stephen Metcalf, who works with the Cameron Macintosh a lot, and he mm. was a sort of go-between because there was all that politics going on as well. But you know, we we stuck together as a team, and we saw it through. And um, we have a couple of moments in the clip that you're going to see. I mean, Anne Hathaway is incredible. And she really could sing, and she really put her heart and soul into this. And she does this song in the most incredibly heart-rending way. But she insisted on singing it, being accompanied by the guy who coached her. And he was a very good vocal coach, but he wasn't a great pianist. And he sort of stumbled over some of these sort of tempo changes. But she followed him. And so when I came to do the orchestra, I found... Well, there's actually not quite the right number of quavers in that bar. So what am I going to do about it? Anyway, I defy you to find the moment where there's not enough quavers well, in the bar. Well, that's the brilliance of it. After all of this paddling underneath, <laughs> yes. we don't notice any I don't of think it, of course. You do. I mean, are you only thinking of it technically, or can you remove yourself well, from it's it? It's funny, actually. I listened to it. I didn't watch it. And mm. um, when, you, when you watch it, you, you forgive all these sort of slight inaccuracies and... Um, <laughs> in the vocal because the, the, the strength of the performance is so magical but you know just as an audio experience it's it's quite uh, it's quite odd <laughs> <laughs> well it works a treat we're going to move to television now mm -hmm. and and one of the big hits so recent hits really which is Paul Dark um you mentioned uh, uh Jeeves and Worcester you've done quite a bit of tv over the years mm. what was it about Paul Dark that attracted you well, I, I found out it was being made, Poldark, and um, I was sort of aware of it from the 70s, but I'd never seen the 70s version, but I knew it was an epic set in Cornwall, and I thought, well, this sounds quite interesting. So I said to my agent, can I have a look at the... Can I get a script? So they sent the script, yeah. and they sent the first three episodes, and I read them all in one evening, because it was so good. And then I said to my agent, look, I really really would like to do this. I really like to meet him. And he said, oh, I think somebody else is doing it. I said, no, you don't understand. I really, really <laughs> want to do this. Please get me a meeting. And so I met the, um, the producer, Damien Timmer. Um, <clears throat> well, no, actually, first of all, I met the director, Ed Bazalgette. And it's always very awkward, those first meetings, because they haven't finished shooting. They don't know what they want. You've never seen anything. And you have to sort of talk intelligently about the music in some way that you haven't written. Yes. And so, um, you know, it's quite interesting sometimes to find some references that, you know, you can, you can say, well, yeah, maybe it could be a little bit like. 
And um, the reference that I came up with was uh, Vaughan Williams, actually, Serenade to Music, you know, those sort of wonderful English, pastoral, sweeping, um, uh, sort of string-led sounds, which you can just sort of imagine on, a, on an epic landscape. And they were very keen on that. Um, so you, you chose them, they didn't choose you. Yeah, yeah, I, I talked them into it. Does that, <laughs> does said, that you really happen, need me to do this. Does that job. happen often? You, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't. Does it? No. <laughs> and you, then, uh, then yeah. I, I actually, um, they they hadn't found any temp music that they particularly liked, and I, I got quite involved in finding some temp music from some some from my stuff. I found some stuff from Tristan and Isolde, which they quite liked, and then I found um, a really nice score by. James Newton Howard called The Village, mm -hmm. which features a solo violin. I mean, it's, it's a very classical violin, but we thought there was something in this sort of solo thing, solo, solo instrument sort of in, in tandem with a, with, a, with a string orchestra, which might work very well. Because with television, of course, you've also got to establish a, a mood, a style, a direction very quickly, haven't you? Within the the first forty seconds or so. Yes. For well, your we have titles. a proper proper title sequence. Mm. Yes, sort of. You you need to establish that this is an epic, sweeping story. That it's you know based in the West Country as, as as far as you can possibly sort of say that in thirty seconds, really. Yes. I was trying to find a musical style for it, and I started looking at some folk music. And um, there's, a, there's a great collection of songs called Songs of the West, which one of these sort of uh, travelling clergymen in the late 19th century collected, and he went round Devon and Cornwall, and he notated down folk songs that people were singing. And there's this wonderful collection that you can actually access on the internet and have a look at all these tunes. And I looked at the tunes, and there was nothing... I didn't actually choose any specific theme to to sort of base it on, but I noticed that most of them were in this sort of Dorian mode, which is very much the mode of English folk music, and I thought, well, that would be an interesting thing to explore, and I could, at this moment, go to the piano and demonstrate the Dorian mode for you. <laughs> Obviously, I'm preaching to the converted here because you're all probably very distinguished, and you've all got your grade eight theory, so you know all about scales and uh, arpeggios and harmonic and melodic minor scales. But um, the Dorian mode um, would be the mode you would get if you played all the white notes starting on a D. So the, the important note in this scale is, is this sixth, which is a sharpened six, which means it's, it's really not really a major or a minor mode. And um, I thought that that, was, that gave a nice colour to the... Um, to the music, and in fact, the theme music, which is in B minor. Um, before the tune comes in, I do this on the chords. Not. I put the D, that note in there in order to sort of color the, um, color the sort of tone palette before the tune comes in. And um, the themes that we're going to look at now, um, what I like about television is, is that it, you have a number of hours of television and uh, you can develop themes uh, in, in far more, really, than you can in a film. Even though, presumably, with television you have budget constraints compared to quite a lot of movies that you do, I suppose musically it must be quite liberating because you have so much more time you do to develop these themes. You do, you do. I mean, that theme gives me a chance to sort of start in a very tentative way and then 
you know, she, she, she achieves sort of poise and equilibrium and it's transformed and, and y you know, you can, you can do that with themes and there's, there's other themes. In the TV series, I, I like to think of the themes as being representing sort of abstract nouns like um, resilience or trepidation or fear rather than characters mm -hmm. because those are the themes that, that go through you, you know, from, from episode to episode, and so you can follow them through. There must be a satisfaction also in getting into people's living rooms directly through the television, as opposed to movies where most... I mean, I, obviously, everyone watches films on TV, but yeah. generally the first time you see them is in a cinema, but actually to have that kind of direct route to people. Yes, I've, like I've really enjoyed that, you know, because I think Sunday night television is actually time where people actually do sit down in an old-fashioned style and mm. watch television together. And, you know, we get figures of about six or seven million people, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a bit of a thrill, really, to think of all those people sitting and listening to your music. Um, the last film we're going to talk about is a very recent one. In fact, so recent, it's not actually out yet. Um, mm. But it has been, it was at Cannes. Yes. And has done a couple of other festivals. And this is Paul Verhoeven's new movie called L. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about Paul Verhoeven as a director first. This is the yeah. man who doesn't really shy away from controversy. And that's certainly going to be the case with L. Um, this is the man behind Basic Instinct, of course, Showgirls, um, Starship And, uh, and the only director to ever show up and receive a Golden Raspberry Award. <laughs> that was for Showgirls, wasn't it? Yeah, well, that's, yes. that's very typical, Paul. Mm -hmm. So what's he like to work with? Well, I was very thrilled to meet him, and I met him a few years ago when I was working on a film for him with Black Book, because he used to work with Jerry Goldsmith, who's one of my absolute heroes. Mm. And um, I think Jerry Goldsmith in Basic Instinct sort of redefined the thriller genre and it's tremendously influential score. I think, well, he made the film classy because it's actually a very trashy movie. Yeah. But he gives it that yeah, shine. Absolutely. Yeah. And Paul loves music. I mean, we, our first meeting, we were talking about Shostakovich and Stravinsky and Bartok. He knows a lot of music. He sends me CDs and things. He sent me The House of the Dead by Janacek, which he thought I should listen to. You know, he really is very interested in um, classical music and 20th and 21st century classical music. So we always have a great time together. And um, you're right, he makes very controversial films and he's, he loves to provoke people. Yes. But he is actually the most delightful man to work with. <laughs> Well, this, this is his first film since Black Book, which was six, mm. uh, well, how many years ago was Five, it? Six years Eight years ago. Or ten years ago, maybe. It's, um, <clears throat> this, is your, this is a French film. Well, um, it is French, yes, but... Um, starring Isabelle Hubert. Yes, and it's going to be their, um, their entry for the Academy Awards, although Paul points out that it has a Dutch director, a Dutch editor, an English composer, and an American screenwriter. Yes. So the uh, French are obviously quite relaxed about that. <laughs> But this is your everyday story of a woman who gets violently raped but doesn't mm. entirely mind. Yeah, I think that would be... Uh, that's sex, sex and violence mostly at the same time in this film, yes. yeah. Yeah, and it's that, one huh? of those films where <laughs> I, I watched it and again with Paul Verhoeven, I can't decide whether it's utterly reprehensible or brilliant. It's one or the other. It's, it's, it really can, it's going to divide audiences, isn't it? It's get, and, but it's very much going to make them feel uncomfortable because you have to start making... You can't help but make moral 
choices yes, within just, the film. Just as you think you've got the measure of it, it's something happens to take the rug from under your feet again. And I watched it at Cannes. They were very nice to invite me to Cannes, and it was a big sort of um, black tie, red carpet premiere. And I, I must admit, I hadn't realised until I saw the film with an audience that it's actually, some of it's quite funny very as funny. well, and the yes. audience laughed. And I had to sort of reassess how I thought about the film. Um, so it is a really very, very interesting and uh, challenging and provocative film. And, and I you know, really enjoyed doing it. It must be hard, though, to, to deal musically, with a, with, particularly with a character who it could go either way. That's the whole point of the film, is that we, we're not quite sure, really, what she's feeling and the, what her motivations are for what she does. No, but we discussed this at length, um, Paul, and we, we decided that there was a pos you know, there is a possibility that the audience might feel that she's very cold, calculating, and wouldn't, re wouldn't relate to her, wouldn't like her. And so he said, if there's something, can the music make her warmer? Can the music give her heart? And um, so that, that was a great brief to have because you know where to go with that. Uh, and I use the harp quite extensively, which sort of gives her a sort of a pulsing heartbeat. I sort of, it's, it's quite an interesting film because it's sort of um, daringly old fashioned and sort of outrageously modern at the same time. I mean, it has this opening title sequence over black cards, which you never see nowadays, and the music comes in, and the music's telling you something. The music's trying, you know, I've got 20 seconds, 30 seconds to tell you what sort of film this might be, which is an opportunity you very, very rarely get in a feature film nowadays. Um, and that was the sort of first appearance. So, so we gave her a theme, you know. She, she actually gets a... A, a theme that, which is supposed to sort of give her a bit of heart. It is, it is an extraordinary piece of work. I would recommend it, but it's pretty tough watch, I think. Okay. It, let's see what happens. I mean, well, it, who the, knows what the audience the, the is going to make Well, I mean, they didn't laugh, but when I saw this film at Cannes, the Cannes audience seemed to think that scene was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were laughing about the wood-fired boiler. <laughs> there must be something that I, I would miss about that somehow. Does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask? Hi. Um, how happy was Claude Michel Schoenberg about readapting his score for Les Mis? Was he... All right with it, or? Well, it's uh, it's interesting you say, should say that because um, when we first started working on it, him and um, Cameron Macintosh were very, very protective about the orchestrations that they had in the show uh, that they'd felt they they'd sort of been working on for years. Um, but as we sort of as the film developed and we got to sort of know each other and trust each other a bit more. He was much more open to adapting the orchestration, um, <clears throat> you know, to give it a more sort of filmic vibe. Sometimes it's very, very simplified. I mean, Tom Hooper was all one for having very, very straightforward and simple orchestrations and nothing too flowery. I mean, this, the, the I Dream to Dream, it starts practically with solo harp and one cello for quite a long time. Um, and obviously in, in the... In the theatre, you can't really do that. You've got to sort of keep it sort of sounding rich and full from the word go. But I, I think, um, I mean, Claude Michel is still my friend. <laughs> I think he was pretty happy. Um, hi. Yes, I was wondering if there have been any instances or particularly important times when, when, when you 
and the director had strong disagreements about you know, what direction to take the music in a film. Like he or she had a, a really strong vision of, of this is what I would like it to sound like now or for the character and, and you had a completely different... And, and what did you do about that then? How did you reach an agreement? Um, yeah, there have been times um, where... Uh, I mean, hopefully you can get over those um, instances before you ever get to the studio. It's really quite awkward if you're in the studio and the director throws a wobbler and says, I hate that cue, I'm not having that music on my film. And that has occasionally happened to me. <laughs> I mean, it, it was funny, actually, a particular director on a particular film threw a complete wobbler about one particular cue and did actually say those words. And I was really annoyed about it because I'd played him demos of it, you know, and I thought we were over that. And I, um, I left the room for a while, <laughs> calmed down, and came back and had this brilliant idea that the way around it was to get the, prints, the strings to play pizzicato. And lo and behold, the strings played pizzicato. He was happy as Larry. <laughs> it was quite extraordinary. I just thought, well, that'll, that'll lighten the mood. That'll work. Um, I mean, I think if... If you're really not on the same page and it becomes obvious at, a first, at, a, at an early stage, you should probably part company because I think it's really difficult to put your heart and soul into a, into a project if you're trying to be pulled the, in a different direction to what you want to go. Demos have become such an important part of the process now, haven't they? Presumably they weren't when you first started no, doing this. No, Do you hateful. like doing No, I hate them. Mm. Well, mostly I hate them. Sometimes I like doing them because sometimes I can find out things through doing them that I hadn't thought of. But the hardest thing to demo is, a, is an orchestra because, you know, the strings playing a melody, no matter how good your samples are, it always sounds a bit flattened, mm. dull and not expressive. Um, and, and I really also I haven't got the patience to, to spend the time that you need. So if I need to do really, really sort of produce demos, I, I sort of farm them out to other people to Well, it's do. become a, a, another part of the industry, hasn't it? Yeah. People doing demos. People doing demos, yeah. 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 Anyone else? When you get into the recording studio, do you like to conduct all the time or do you feel sometimes it's better to be back in the box listening to it and following the score? Almost always I will conduct. I, I'm not the most brilliant conductor in the world, but because it's my music, I think it's, it's sort of useful for me to be there. And if there's questions, you know, they come directly to me and I can, I can give the musicians a really quick answer. I mean, I'm very lucky that I have um, my wonderful husband, Roger, who's a um, music engineer, and he'll sit in the box, and so he's my sort of ears in the box. Um, so, I mean, we together we sort of make it work in that way. I mean, I can I can understand why a composer would want to be in the, in the recordings in in the um, in the control booth, but actually, I, I actually have quite a lot of fun interacting with the musicians, and I wouldn't like somebody to take that away from me. It's not much fun in the box because there's people being very serious and, and to be very quiet and things. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about that actually because. Just going back to Art of Noise, you, you had a lot of fun in there. You were able to yeah. sit in a studio for a week and just try stuff out. Yeah. That really doesn't happen anymore, does it? Because studios are so expensive, you've yeah. got to get in and out. Yes, you do mostly. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, 
you know, how, 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 few, how few hours can I spend in a studio now because it's, it's so expensive. It's a shame. You have, we have lost some of that sort of joy of actually uh, experimentation, I guess, in the studio. There's no room, there's no time to experiment. You have your own studio, though, of course. Mm, yes, we, okay. we do all the mixing and, and things. And, and, I mean, that's, that's great because that's where you can have time and mm. um, that's great luxury, really. Hi. Um, just kind of going off what you were saying about demos and how much influence like digital music and electronic music have um, in the film industry now, has that in any way affected the way you approach, especially you know, how short of amount of time people have to write for films and things? It's, it seems it's much shorter than it was you know, 20 years ago or so. So has that affected how you approach scoring uh, either film or television? Um, well, luckily, although the time has got shorter, I've got much quicker. <laughs> I suppose because I've been doing it for a while, you know, things that would have taken me six weeks, I can probably do in two weeks now. Um, so, no, it hasn't really fundamentally altered the way that I approach things. Um, I, always, um, I always approach them with a complete feeling of panic that I'll never get this done, and it's, why am I doing this? I'm useless. God, I've got no idea what I'm doing. And then, then I start, and it's sort of, okay, I've started now, so I'll finish. <laughs> That's sort of how I do it, really. Any other questions? Hi. Um, so my question, I have two questions, actually. One is, um, what do you find for yourself is the most effective way of scoring? Is it by hand, or do you sit in front of Sibelius, or do you use um, any doors like logic or anything else and the second question is how would you start writing a score okay well i um i still write by hand and um i was very pleased to see that there are still a few composers who do that i saw a very interesting program with winton marsalis who was writing a piece for nicola benedetti and he was writing by hand and in fact i heard a very interesting thing that emma thompson said when she writes her screenplays, she scribbles it down as quickly as she can by hand because she finds that she can think through her hand. And then, you know, through a process of refinement, those scribbles become a, a very neat screenplay. And, um, and yes, when I'm, I, I write very quickly and I, and I scribble it down. Then I have a wonderful assistant who will take my scores when I've written them and put them into Sibelius, so we've got them in Sibelius, and then we can get the parts done and everything. I also have logic, which I use, and I would, if I'm doing a score that's basically electronic, I would actually start on the logic because I would start from the sounds. I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of think of it as a sort of orchestral score, and I, and I wouldn't work on the piano really on that. Um, and uh, yes, I like my logic. I sort of use it, and uh, I appreciate its sophistication and uh, all sorts of things that I can do on logic that would have just been a dream back in the 80s on a fair light, you know, amazing. Um, so, did that answer your question? Oh, how do I start? How, how do I start? Yes, well, I said, as I said, in a complete state of panic. And then when I've got over that, I, I just sort of sit at the piano and I look at the film and I just try things out, really, until I find something that I think might give me an idea. And I'm immediately thinking of the orchestration. I wouldn't ever think of an idea in in isolation. If I'm thinking of an idea, I'm thinking, right, that's a solo violin or that's a bassoon or whatever. It, the, the sound is immediately clear to me in my head. 
I just would like to ask, how difficult it to get into this industry uh, composing for films and television? How difficult? Extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. difficult. I wouldn't like to be starting now. And I think the thing is, I think everybody's got their, their own route into it, really. And I think um, it's really important to have your own thing going as a composer. I mean, I was really, really lucky that I had the art of noise. Um, and, you know, I, I do sometimes advise people to sort of get your own group going. You know, whatever it is, whatever style of music it, it is, do your own thing so that you've got that and that starts to give you your own musical identity. And then somebody, if you want to do films, you know, somebody will find you if you sort of, if you make yourself available and, and you have your own, your own thing. <laughs> One last question from me, which is, what are you up to at the moment? What have we got to look forward to? Well, I'm writing a piece for the violinist Joshua Bell, and it's like a, a film score in reverse. I'm writing the music first, and they're going to do an animated film when I've done the music. And, it, and it, the, the situation is um, based on a real-life event which happened. Joshua Bell, one of the most famous violinists in the world, plays on a sort of million-pound Stradivarius, went to the metro station in Washington and busked for half an hour. And nobody stopped. Nobody stopped and listened. He was playing this incredible piece. And um, somebody wrote a book about it, and it's a children's book. And, and it's, a, it's a book really about trying to make people listen, and more importantly, trying to make people listen together. Because we all get so wrapped up in listening to things in our earphones and... We have our own music, but you know, people come to concerts and they hear things together, and it's a very special event, especially if you if you listen with children as well. So that's that's what I'm doing, and I'm very pleased to tell you that I finished it a couple of days ago, and I've started the orchestration. So, <laughs> <laughs> and and there's another series of Paul Dark. There's another series of Paul Dark, which they're filming now, and I'll start that in January. Fantastic, and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I, as I said at the beginning, we we. We've been waiting many years for you to get you up here on the stage. Such a pleasure. Um, please join me, ladies and gentlemen, in saying thank you to Anne Dudley. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you.